Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am one half of the pod, Marianella. Who are you? I'm Ruth. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and the other half. Hi, Ruth. How are you? Hi, Marinella. What are we talking about this week? We're going to do an episode about amateurism. What's that? I don't get it. Are you going to come straight in with the classic essay question opener being like, please define your terms. Well, generally, I think amateurism or amateur is like understood as the opposite of professional. So someone who does something not for money, for fun, for enjoyment and other things like that. But also, I think the word amateur is often used a little bit insultingly, like, oh, they're just an amateur. And that's kind of one of the other things that got me thinking about why we should do the topic, because I think being an amateur is often something that's looked down upon. And I actually think there's something quite amazing and beautiful and powerful about amateurism, which is what I wanted to do an episode on. Yeah, I mean, and even right away you were saying something about like money being involved, something that's not quote-unquote professional, and um, many other people, I mean, including Hannah McGregor, shout out, have talked about the spaces in which amateurism, as opposed to quote-unquote professional stuff, create like very interesting areas to explore, create, because they have different sets of restraints, they have different... just things are different. The, the environment in which these new things are created are, is just so different that obviously the outcome is different. So Yeah, because a lot of the time, if you're making something professionally, it's often underneath someone else's banner. You know, doing it for a corporation comes with whatever messages or profit-driven needs of that corporation. But doing something as an amateur, you get to do it for yourself. And I think, you know, okay, I'm talking around the subject here, but when I'm thinking of it right now, doing the podcast, I'm obviously going to think about doing the podcast because that's what we're making. And obviously this is not a professional podcast. It's in my living room and your room. Yep. And, you know, it's set up on my little desk, sitting on my comfy chair, having a chat. I think it's really amazing that we get to do this and there is no one else deciding what we say and what we do and what each episode's going to be on. There are no rules. I mean, you can hear our biggest fans in, in the background, which are computer fans. So yeah, I yeah, there is certain amount of uh, freedom to this DIY, do-it-yourself approach to creating media, creating art, creating cultural things. But there's also a very interesting, obviously, I mean, Again, Hannah McGregor has talked about this uh, a very interesting aesthetic that is not always intentional. It's just like there is no way around it. Again, you can hear our fridges, our fans, and that's just part of the language that, whether we want it or not, comes with like DIY podcasting. And uh, who said it, Ruth, that at some point when these restraints become optional, then that just becomes a style? Like, for example, back in the day, you could only have pixelated type in like video games just because the resolution was very low but once we got better computers and better technology pixelated type just became a decision like an aesthetic decision instead of something that that was imposed so it's going to be very interesting to see in the future whether people start adding fans to their 
very highly polished podcasts. Yeah, Anyways, as, a, I digress. as authentic sound. Yeah, we keep referencing Hannah McGregor. She has a podcast called Secret Feminist Agenda. And one of the things that was kind of inspiring was actually just a throwaway comment that was made in one of the episodes where she talked about podcasting as art with the messy edges on display. And I thought that that was really beautiful. And I think that kind of the messy edges and like seeing behind the workings is one of the things that I think is really fun about amateur podcasting that obviously isn't necessarily there in the most professional ones. But I don't want to just be super self-indulgent and talk about the art that we're making. Because I think one of the other things that is interesting about that whole kind of fuck perfectionism train of thought is that so much of the stuff that we're supposed to do, supposed to, like society tells us to be doing, is that we're always meant to be producing things and i think there's this idea that's that's going around that's so common at the moment is that the sort of the side hustle thing which is that everything that you find yourself enjoying or good at is something that should then become some kind of money earner and sometimes i jokingly call the podcast the side hustle but i also kind of hate myself when i do because i really don't like that idea and and I've heard it from other friends who like baking and the moment they get good at making cakes people are like well why don't you sell those cakes or if you're good at drawing then people are like oh why don't you put this art up and sell it on Etsy and those things are obviously great and valuable if you want to do them but it's that idea that it only has value the moment you start selling it or making money from it yeah or that if you do that it will immediately give you more respect. Oh, well, I'm selling my art. Well, that's that's more genuine than the thing you're making. And actually nothing has changed in what you're making. You're still doing the exact same thing. But the moment it kind of crosses that line, then it becomes more valid. Even the term itself, right? That's like side hustle, I think sounds to me like appropriated from black and african-american culture like the hustle it's also like it's a weird appropriation of like class stuff like if your etsy is your side hustle you're not really hustling <laughs> i mean maybe you are sorry people are open you know but like there's a certain privilege to use certain things and just monetize your hobbies is like cool like you're an instagram star There's a lot of work that goes to that, but it's just also an interesting way of like talking about class and access to media making and who is even able to be canonically pretty enough, interesting enough to generate money, revenue, and go from having this in your house with your ring light kind of DIY approach to something to like already making it a business which is not always the same as making it professional. So yeah, it's, it's just interesting there too, you know, like the layers of taking, well, obviously the notion of free time, which is also like a very like class-based thing, like who mm. has free time to do things? And, and on top of that, once you have the free time to generate and, and, and generate new things, who has the ability to monetize it? And then when they monetize it, does it acquire a new form of value? And, and I know we're talking a lot of, like capitalist and economic terms but it's just interesting just the idea of like doing something and having different value based on whether you make money from it or not or whether you get clicks and views so like 
going viral as a means of value. That was literally the next thing. No, it was the next thing that I was going to say is that I have been thinking about how likes are sort of the alternative currency. You know, oh, well, if you're not making money from it, but you've got hundreds of thousands of likes, then that is another way of saying, well, it's acceptable. Well, it's a it's a useful thing to be doing. And it's like, no, we're just finding another way of putting some kind of numbers onto things. I think our society is obsessed with applying numbers, you know, KPIs to our own lives. Key performance um, indicators. Yeah, it's using office jargon there. Yeah, it's like we've taken this idea that we can judge how well we're performing based on numbers and then we try and put that onto ourselves and what we're doing for fun. Yeah, it's a very strange way of measuring, quantifying social validation. And I'm wondering, I mean, other people, notorious friend of the pot, not really, uh, Hank Green has said something about, and, and John Green, I think, they have both said something about the things that you cannot measure, like how much you're... I don't know, your little essay resonates with people. Like, it's not how many people, it's how deeply it resonates. And that's really hard to measure. But just because the numbers aren't there doesn't mean that it's not valuable. So Yeah, and you can't... I never feel mad at people for trying to pursue that either. You know, it's a little bit like... I mean, maybe it's a weird parallel, but things we talked about in our beauty episode with like makeup and all sorts of things. You can't be mad at people for pursuing the thing that society tells them is valid, you know? Like, if you're constantly being told the thing that has the most likes is really the thing that's valuable, and then you pursue that, and then at the same time people judge you and say, oh, all you're doing is you're just trying to do this for likes. It's like, well, yes, because that's what people are constantly told is a source of validation. So I think it's really understandable. And also I definitely feel it myself and have to kind of resist that urge to think how many people will retweet this if I make a tweet along those lines. There is some psychological aspect to being clapped at by the internet. <laughs> and it kind of informs, it's a feedback mechanism, right? I think uh, I've heard people say that the like on Facebook was probably one of the greatest, not greatest, but most impactful single UX inventions of this generation. User experience. Yeah, user experience decisions in website design and like experience design. The the like button or the heart little button in on Twitter because of such an easy way to provide instant yes gratification and validation from an audience which again like in terms of uh, amateurism interesting now that with social media our individual lives became uh, a, almost like a staged performance they were one could argue they were always kind of some degree of performance but like with social media they became like a stage with like codified applauses and uh And, and therefore a production, which some people got to make money off and have uh, social capital from it. But others, just in general, having your Facebook page or your Instagram page, I don't know, became this little theater. Yeah, I was thinking about something similar, which is how we kind of professionalize ourselves. And I know... We use this phrase like, oh, it's not on brand for me. I've been hearing people saying that. And that that was another phrase that's like been ringing around in my head going, well, wait a second. 
we're not brands, like we're not companies, but somehow we've come up with this idea of a personal brand. And there's that personal brand stuff that, you know, careers advisors might say, oh, you need to have this like idea of yourself and always be presenting yourself. But it's more than just how are you presenting your achievements? It's like how you will talk and what you show on different social media platforms. And I know that I divide them up into different kinds of versions of myself. Like your Instagram Ruth is different from your Twitter Ruth. That's different from your medium Ruth, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Although I think part of it is this idea of like what, in a weird way, thinking of myself like some kind of brand, what do these different audiences expect of me? But also part of it is feeling like no one deserves all of me. Wow. <laughs> deep, <laughs> deep, bro. Yeah, uh, one thing that I like uh, here in, in the notes that you put in is it's almost like cultivating branding as people as though we can become f professionals as at being ourselves. And that's kind of a scary thought. It also goes back to a lot of, I mean, we talked about this in the beauty episode and some other episodes about the like curated, like a real, well, it's not a real time, but like a curated version of the self that appears on the internet and how um, it's, again, it's a production and uh, it's, it's an interesting approach because all of a sudden in a culture that values authenticity all of a sudden, because of this value, everything becomes extra produced. Instagram filters are filters. And again, going back, to, shout out to earlier in the episode when we were talking about like the restrictions of the medium, right? Like when the Polaroids looked a certain way, they gave a certain aesthetic. You were a photographer. You did not need to hire a photographer to take pictures of you on vacation. All of a sudden, you could take camera with you. You could produce the thing, had a certain aspect of it. That then Instagram kind of looked at it. They're like, huh, nostalgia factor. Let's write code so we can then replicate the aesthetic image of this Polaroid. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, just a little uh, mind exploding emoji here. I feel like I'm in like in a hall of mirrors, you know? Yeah, and it's like how much does each brand of each platform then decide how we not just like how we present ourselves, but how we become on those spaces, I think. You know, there's the idea Instagram is an aesthetic space. So yeah, we're kind of curating an aesthetic version of ourselves, but then are we making further actions and choices that match Instagram's brand? Like what is the brand of Twitter? I don't know. It's not just like what we say, what we show, but is that also influencing what we do and how we think about ourselves? And again, it's, it's this weird fine balance between extra curated, fake, and authentic, which I think if we, we bring it back to the idea of amateurism, you were mentioning in our conversations a little bit about how, I don't know if you can like expand on this because I was very interested, how amateur all of a sudden becomes a little bit more quote unquote like truthful, um, a little bit more honest. I don't know how true this is. So Yeah, I mean, what's funny is my reading for this episode involved rereading the whole of the importance of being earnest because I was looking for one quote and then Shout out to Oscar Wilde, friend of the pod. Yeah, I I got a bit distracted and just decided to read the whole play. But yeah, I was thinking about this idea in 
that kind of contemporary literature of the the gentleman amateur and how the gentleman amateur what is it it's you know the guy who just like reads and writes a horticulture anthology for fun is studying astronomy maybe doing paintings you know pursuing sciences and the arts for leisure and intellectual curiosity and none of those things are professional and in fact there was this idea that doing them in this kind of leisurely, gentlemanly way, was more authentic and scientific and curious than if you were earning money from it, in which case, you know, your thoughts couldn't be as trusted. You're, you're not going to be really as dedicated as an amateur would be. Like, it's the complete opposite for what we have now. And, I mean, I am in some ways reading that from the literature and also other reading around it. I'm sure other historians might say, oh, I wasn't exactly like that. But I definitely see this tone. It's certainly something that like comes across in Oscar Wilde, that these are the the real people doing the hard work and that like earning money would be the last thing they would want to do as aristocrats. Obviously, the best way is just to have money and never yeah. question where it comes from. The whole like stop being poor. <laughs> like, oh, cool. Quick side note and tangent reminds me of apparently this time that Bosey Douglas, the infamous lover of Oscar Wilde, who... Oh god, that guy. I think he did tell Oscar Wilde how like like a gentleman doesn't know how much money he has in a bank account uh, or something like that. Like it, it was just like not up to his level when because uh, at, at some point and this is like homo gossip from centuries past. Yeah, so basically when like Oscar Wilde was basically saying like hey Bosey, we're spending too much money on our little gay vacations like and he was just like ah. <laughs> Oscar. <laughs> Anyways, back to the podcast. Um, I, I have I have gay gossip for for millennia now. It's important, you know. Got to stay up to date. But anyways, like it's interesting how also in like in a very hyper capitalist where our like where our rock stars are billionaires, you know, Elon Musk and the Kardashians. By by our, I just mean like the societies, I guess, not my personal ones. But yeah, like like we have like Jay Z and Beyonce and Oprah, like you know, uh, people who are billionaires, who are like up there. It's interesting how all of a sudden, if you make money out of something, you're not a true artist or a true. I don't know. There there are certain professions, activities, or you know, things people do that are seem to be tarnished by the incorporation of like money and sustenance, which is like I still do not understand while others are just literally blessed by the second you start making money. So it's it's interesting just where the concept of the amateur comes in here. Yeah, I think it's interesting when it comes to art, you know, that if you say you're making money from it, then people can look down on you and it's not it's not as pure, it's not the pure expression of the self or something along those lines. And yet, at the same time, I remember a friend finding out that my partner, who is a musician and plays in a couple of orchestras, that isn't actually their job. And they were like, oh, I thought they were a musician. And I was like, they are a musician. Like, they play the viola in orchestras, but it's, they're amateur orchestras. And it's that weird thing. And it's just... I just thought it was really interesting how the fact that those weren't paid jobs meant them questioning the musical talent. And I was like, but that has nothing to do with it. And yeah, it's weird which spaces that kind of amateurism is something that raises the pedestal up and in other spaces kind of like 
sit back down again. Yeah, and I, I also don't know, until fairly recently, I think it was like boxing and wrestling in the Olympics, you could not be in the Olympics if you were a pro, uh, if you were a pro boxer. So like all of the big shots from like Manny Pacquiao to, I don't know, other people, they were not like, arguably, you know, they have fights that, that generate hundreds of millions of dollars and they are marketed as like the greatest ever and i use the word marketed very intentionally but all of a sudden they were left out of one of the most like sanctioned sport sporting events of of the world which are the olympics they have the olympics they have their own problem don't get me going on that and I was like trying to figure out why. I mean, of course, a lot of it is like, well, you—if you're getting money for fights, uh, it's just not as, you know, it's like not as honorable or whatever. Like, it—it's just—it was a different thing, different also, different set of rules. I read in a blog that someone said like, why would a pro boxer risk his entire? And they were talking about him, like about guys. Why would a pro boxer risk his entire career to losing to a potential amateur, which is like. I never thought of that. I'm like, all oh, right. Like if I'm all of a sudden I've been marketing this person as uh, larger than life and, and like the best ever. And all of a sudden this like person who's an amateur comes into the ring and like beats that boxer in an Olympic ring. It's like, it's over for you, right? All of a sudden this hundred million dollar deals. I was like, are you really the best? Like, so how much of this is also this division of professional and amateur, it's necessary to maintain certain spectacle outside. So, so the people who are making money can continue making this money, you know, cause you talk about gatekeeping and we can talk about purity, truth and authenticity and which are very strange concepts anyways. But when you're like, okay, let's go back to the key question of, of the centuries not not the key question, but one of them is like, who benefits from this division? <laughs> and mm. at the end of the day, you're just like, who benefits from the division from amateurism to pro, from like amateur podcasts to pro podcasts, amateur movies to like big professional industry movies, who benefits? And at the end of the day, it's people who are making the money, who are just yeah. like, yep, quality is better. Well, yeah. And professionalism can also just be an adjective. Like, it's not a description of making money or not. It's an idea of something that means, like, quality, but also means status quo. Like, what is professional can refer to, like, clothing can be so-called professional clothing. And that is not the clothing that is bringing money in, you know. There's a lot of politics in there. What do you mean, like, suits? Like, suits and... Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, that there's a so-called look that's professional. And obviously that look tends to be what white men wear. Yeah, so I was thinking that professionalism is also a weapon to force conformity to Western patriarchal norms, essentially. I mean, and and also not to say um, hairstyles, you know, for the longest time uh certain hair types have been deemed professional so if if your hair locks dreadlocks all of a sudden that became well not all of a sudden but like because of white supremacy that became not an acceptable way to have hair which is the strangest thing ever like why wouldn't why would just a state of hair be wrong for the quote-unquote workplace so yeah, it's like now we're talking about professionalism as gatekeeping, not only like controlling your body, 
and controlling a certain set of values that you need to literally embody. You know, white supremacy being one of those values that are embodied by those rules of like, cut your hair off because no matter how you, unless you straighten it, um, you will be unprofessional. Um, yeah, professionalism I mean, as like a code work for conformity to authority in a certain set of politics. Yeah, I mean, it's basically saying that your body, your essential self is somehow unprofessional. And then as that is obviously nonsense, that's really just a way of saying you don't belong here. And well, really, not that only that, it's like you, you're you not allowed to to work, So, which means you're not allowed to make money, which means you're not allowed to feed yourself, which means you're not allowed to live. It's just very quickly. It's yeah, people are no, allowed to. That's, that's where I was also thinking. It's keeping people out of the spaces in which more money can be earned through these kind of norms and concepts. So Ruth, should we get rid of qualifications, diplomas, things that sanction someone as professional, as a pro? Big questions. I have a lot of like uncertainty about qualifications in different spaces. I don't like the weaponization of qualifications. Wait, what, I... what's that? What's weaponization of qualifications? Okay, by weaponization of qualifications, I mean the idea that you need to have a degree or some other qualification certification to enter into the workforce. And also that if you don't have that, you're less smart, less intelligent, less capable. And obviously, not everyone can afford to do a degree in different countries. That is easier or harder, depending on free university education or not. Some places, you know, you have to go into a lot of debt to get a degree. And I think creating these kind of barriers and saying you have to have these things and all of these qualities in order to enter the workforce is another way of just kind of reinforcing who belongs and who doesn't. Yeah, so I think the concept that you need a degree to enter the workforce is flawed. I also think that questioning whether someone has good ideas or is a valid or interesting person based on what qualifications they have. Also bullshit. However, I think that there are some things that you obviously do need to study for in order to do, like very useful jobs right now. Medicine. Medicine. Hmm. Yeah. I'm all in favor of qualified doctors, just yeah, to I clarify. Rather, I would rather be treated by someone with qualifications and sanctioned uh, medicine education than not uh shout out to doctors yeah and i think that's that's so two things like one thing is like it depends one thing is training doesn't always lead you to qualifications there's a lot of like apprenticeships and stuff like that that um aren't sanctioned but that are there usually that's more in like in the care, like caring industries and and trades so that's that's one thing but the other thing is it's just like a little curveball here is that because in certain, and this is like a, probably a first world problem, I don't know, in certain circles, like very like radical, like fuck diplomas, fuck university circles that are like lefty or I don't know how you would call it. One thing that often gets, gets missed is that for a lot of people of color, literally the only way for anyone to take you seriously is to show a credential or, or not to take you, but to start taking you seriously. And I'm t talking from like the interpersonal level to like all of a sudden you're like, no, 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 this person is a psychologist or oh, no, 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 this person is a trained engineer, designer, whatever. 
And all of a sudden, like in the workplace where also you have a race and gender and all of those qualifications, sometimes that's that's like a, a tool of, of people to acquire legitimacy in the face of white supremacy. That's That's one thing. And the other thing is like, it's also very in the system that some people you can only move to another country if you have certain level of qualification, which is again, another gatekeeping thing, but it's, um, that's why I'm always very careful just to be like, yes, gatekeeping is weird and terrible and bad and just kind of fosters the inequalities that we have already. But it's very strange to like walk into like a group of people who are just like, fuck university you're privileged like you know what a lot of people that was training was the only option and a lot of people and that's one of the the things that they could afford to do because it's really hard i mean i don't know you but like sometimes i find myself in rooms where some people white people are like i got here just because i didn't have to go to school like and then kind of brag about how they didn't know anything about the job until they started doing the job. I'm like, wait a second, how did you get in? Because I had to prove that I had to do, <laughs> I could do the job before, you know, like that kind of, so there's also, that's why my curve was like, there's also some degree of like nuanced in there. Yeah, we shouldn't necessarily need all of these things. And I think we should value other kinds of learning too. Like I, I do really believe that, you know, you can, you can enter and get a job and learn on the job and come out with a lot of knowledge by the end of it. And I think that also you can have a valid insight from it. But that doesn't mean that jumping in and getting ahead of someone else because of your privilege is okay. Because there are just like lots of different ways these things can happen. And I also ultimately love learning. I mean, that's partly why I do this. And I do think that having spaces that are dedicated to learning and time dedicated to learning is really amazing and valuable. And I honestly think that the concept of it is just really great. I wish it wasn't full, as you say, of gatekeeping or that it can cost so much in order to go to university or do whatever. There's lots of different ways of studying, obviously. But yeah, I think all of those things can be really valid. But yeah, I think there also has to be a respect and understanding for different ways of learning things. And also that kind of jumps back to amateurism and I guess another kind of curiosity. I mean, if someone spends loads of time studying and getting good at something without going to university or without studying it formally, how can that be recognized? Should it be recognized? I mean, I don't know. I think sometimes it gets recognized just by the way, like the product that's out there. I hate product, the word product. But how do you know you're a writer? Well, when you're a writer, isn't that something that like Sarah Green said to to John, <laughs> friend of the pod? Um, yeah, yeah. Like when you're writing, uh, that's when you're a writer. So for a lot of people, that's that's just the way it happens. I mean, not to say like, oh, all of a sudden you're doing surgery, you're a doctor. Like, well, no, but um, I don't know. Depends what we mean by recognition. If, you, if it's recognition in terms of like applause and social validation, that's one thing. If it's um, opportunities, that's a different thing. And again, it's it's interesting to see how like this is why this is so complex that uh, the the line between amateur and professional is also very contingent in in all of the other factors that makes a person quote unquote legitimate at something. 
So it's uh, like, are we professional podcasters? Uh, well, I, no, um, we don't have professional equipment. We don't make money out of this. But like, we do have certain preparation process and learning training that, that we've gone through that even though it was not specifically for podcasting, podcasting was one of the outcomes of. So, I don't know. Yeah. And then, you know, talking about the pursuit of legitimacy, you can say, like, who decides what is legitimate? And also, does that even matter? We've talked about lots of things, but I also really wanted to talk about joy at some point. Okay, tell me how joy fits into amateurism. Because I think that a lot of the time we forget that it's okay to do something just for the joy of it. And that is jumping back to what we talked about at the start about, you know, the side hustle in quote, air quote marks there, mm -hmm. the constant productivity. And we were talking about lots of different things around authenticity and purity and truth and all of these different ways of thinking about amateurism. But I think that there is something really beautiful about doing something just for the joy of it and I don't think we talk about joy often enough in feminism to be honest I I know that there's the sort of reclaiming of the feminist killjoy which is also you know Sarah Ahmed's work is great and powerful but I also think yes that they're just looking at the promise of happiness a book that it's recommended yeah these are these are like really important thoughts But yeah, I also think that joy is something that really sustains us and is just a really beautiful thing. And a lot of the time we act like it's kind of frivolous or not important to feel happiness or even irresponsible. I sometimes see that in kind of left-wing activist circles that there's, there's something scandalous about feeling happy in dark times. And we're kind of, are, we're in dark times right now. And confirmed. Yeah, I find that really frustrating because it's not doing us any good um, to feel despair all the time. And I'm reading a book about hope at the moment, which is also influencing a lot of my thoughts. Who's it by? It's by Rebecca Solnit. Shout out. Of the, the mansplaining fame, person behind the term mansplaining. But this was yep. written long before that. Uh, it's a 2005 book. Yeah, and there's this line, I just want to quote this line from the book about hope, that says, When you face a politics that aspires to make you fearful, alienated and isolated, joy is a fine initial act of insurrection. I love that, I love that. Yeah, it's just got me thinking about how much joy is something that actually can be a motivator um, and keep you going to fight against the bad things. It isn't a distraction from the bad things. It isn't ignoring things to find small acts of happiness. And I see people on, on Twitter saying, oh, how can people be posting about playing games with their kids when people are dying? And it doesn't mean you don't care about one or the other. You know, when you see this, the bad stuff happening and you post about the happiness in your life, you can be posting that for the people who know you and the people you care about to say, like, I'm here and I'm okay. And you're finding those good moments. It doesn't mean that you don't have any empathy for anything outside. So, yeah, I was thinking about how, like, there's another kind of concept of amateurism. There's this word, uh, dilettante, which means, like, someone who finds joy in their in their hobby. And I think that that is something that's really important to reclaim and to do. And 
So it reminds me in the recent video that John Green made called You Are an Artist. He said this line, art making is not optional for humans. And that was one of the other things that really resonated with me with this idea of joy and hope in these times. And this concept of who's amateur and who's professional, it's not even optional. It's just, we have to make things, we have to do things and we have to find happiness. So is there a line between amateur and professional or is this, we all just do things. We write things, we make things, we are musicians or we are artists. And then we just create new kind of binaries to divide up who's doing things in a legitimate or not legitimate way. But once again, I just say, fuck binaries. Why not? Neither or both. We make things because we're alive. And the sun also rises when things fall apart, which incidentally was a submission that I made for the art assignment years ago. And that was another video of them. John read it. <laughs> we'll have to put it in the show notes. We will put it on the show notes. It's, uh, but yeah, it's, sometimes I think about that phrase, right? Like it, the whole the whole idea was like you had to find books in your house and with the spines make some poetry. Usually, the assignment was that you would have to go to a friend's house. For example, I would go to your house, Ruth. Which, by the way, a year ago ish, I was in your house. Like April tenth, I came back, and it's April thirteenth. So, what a year ago? Anyways. So yeah, the whole assignment was like I would go to someone's house or someone would go to someone else's house, look through their book collection with their consent, of course, and select books that would represent the person and just make a little poem out of it, out of the book spines. I think everybody should do it. It would be amazing. I did not go anywhere, but I did find books in my uh, coffee table at the time. I don't know if I was probably going through some tumultuous time because I had like uh, The Sun Also Rises for university and When Things Fall Apart, which is another book for when things go really bad. And they were just stacked together. Made a photo, made a, an Instagram photo probably, submitted it and that was that. Mm. Anyways, so yeah, Beautiful. we make things. We make things because we're alive and joy is part of, it's an essential component. And it's interesting to see that even in the darkest times, there's this snippets of joy. You know, I think that's a beautiful point to end on it. If you wanted to finish here. I think, I think we should. So thank you all. I hope you're making things or making time for yourself um, and uh, having, you know, an all right, tolerable time. This has been another episode of The Intersection of Things. Thank you so much for your attention and your ears and spending this awesome time with us in your head. Ruth, if they want to tweet at us, where can they do that? On Twitter, at Things Intersect. If they want to write to us, where can they do that? thingsintersect at gmail.com footnotes and stuff because we're going to put footnotes and annotate this episode where can they find that? theintersectionofthings.com perfect and if they want to find you do you want to be found? I quite like being found only okay. on Twitter no other platforms where? like where on Twitter? nescient n-e-s-i-e-n-t alright cool and uh, right now my, my office hours are closed on Twitter so but if you want to at some point apply at Untaste and Such and only communicate <laughs> through gifts. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, music by David Mark Hucklesby. And also Eternal, thank you for uh, to everyone we've quoted or talked about in this episode and to everyone around us who kind of make our lives better. Thank you so much. We really value all of this and uh, take care until next time. Bye.